0: Katie, Dermot O'Brien Field Researcher. It's 11.54 p.m. on Thursday, April 30, 1992. I've been observing the ritual for about 20 minutes now. A cult is gathered in a clearing about 150 meters square. I'm observing from a point about 15 meters back in the surrounding jungle, to the south of the clearing itself. I'll remain in this position as long as I feel I'm safe from discovery. Are dancing around a large bonfire in a semicircle, moving counterclockwise. The dance is analogous to several other standard spring fertility dances found in the Creole region rituals. I make a note to self for reference of Saint Cloud, Volume Four. Otherwise, this appears to be a run-of-the-mill Voodoo ritual. Hold it just a second. It's this. An old man with white face paint, an old military uniform, and a top hat is bringing something to the central altar, located just west of the fire. It appears to be a box of some sort, wrapped in coarse cloth. He's bringing out of the wrappings. It is a box, wouldn't it, looks like? He's opening it as the dancers begin to circle the altar to the north of it. His back is to me. Damn it, you old fart, get out of the way. I can't see a bloody thing. Oh, this is a new twist. There's a new trick in the repertoire, a talking skull. The old man is holding it by the hair, and it's bellowing like a banshee. Bit of ventriloquism, I'd say. The more I look at that old man, though. There's something about it that reminds me. If only I could get a better look. <laughs>
1: Some areas of the human mind and indeed of the world we live in that were never meant for investigation. There are always those who delve into the darker worlds of knowledge, and many pay with their sanity for their interest. Some of these unfortunates are taken in by the Hayward Foundation. An organization that studies paranormal experiences and their effects on humanity. It is cases such as these that are sent to a restored mansion in a small coastal town in Maine. A center for the care and study of the insane. Since the 1920's this place has been known as the Hayward Sanitarium.
2: That cup for you now, Doctor. Oh,
3: thank you, Mrs. Delmore. I don't mind if I do.
2: Are you all set to begin working up at the sanitarium?
3: Mm, I suppose I am. I guess it's never really easy starting over again in a new place. I do want to thank you for letting me stay at the bed and breakfast while they're remodeling my house.
2: Well, think nothing of it. There really won't be any more guests till the tourist season opens. In fact, the state the old Hammond place was in, it just might be until then that you can move in anyhow. <laughs>
3: Oh, well, it certainly looked charming on the Realtors' report in Boston. I guess they left a few things out of the description.
2: I'm sure they did. Well, from what you told me, your being transferred here put you in quite a pinch to get any place you could find.
3: Well, actually, I offered to take the late Dr. Bailey's post. I really felt the need to get out of the city when my wife passed away. The Foundation was very understanding in assigning me to the center here in Maine.
2: Well, I guess I'm just one of the folks around here who will never really understand what they do. And honestly, I don't care for all of them being up there. But as long as the locks are good and tight, I got nothing to complain about. But listen to me talk. I'm sure you'll like it here. New Bristol is one of the finest places to live on the whole seaboard.
3: Well, I suppose I should get going. First day and all. I guess I want to make a good impression with the old gents who run the place. Well, I'll see you tonight, Mrs. Delmore. Goodbye.
2: Bye now, Doctor. Best of luck. Well, good morning.
3: Excuse me, is it all right to park here? Well, visitor parkings off yonder to there. Oh, I'm not a visitor. I'm Dr. Richard Atwater, the new staff psychologist. I'm replacing Dr. Bailey. I called ahead to
4: say I would arrive today. Of course. Plum slipped my mind. I reckon there aren't too many visitors at this place anyway. I'm Chester. I take care of the grounds and do any fixing as it comes up. I suppose that's where all the others park. You might as well park there too. Well, Chester, it's
3: a pleasure to make your acquaintance. I'm going to head out. Are you Dr. Richard Atwater? Uh, yes, yes, I am.
5: Good, the staff's waiting to meet you.
3: All right. That's quite a caretaker you got there. He looks like he stepped right off the pages of Captain's Courageous.
5: Chester? Yeah, you might say that. He's an original, the only staff member who's left from when the Haywards lived here. Mm. His grandfather planted that elm tree he's pruning. He's a great old guy, but he'll talk your ear
3: off if you give him a chance. I'm sure he's got lots of stories. Uh, Who might you be? I'm Hallie Brooks. I'm pleased to meet you, Miss Brooks. It's Dr. Brooks. Oh. uh, Are you a psychiatrist, Dr. Brooks?
5: No, no. I'm one of the field researchers assigned to the sanitarium, Ph.D. in sociology. Currently, I'm working in superstition and paranormal experience.
3: I wasn't aware that there was anything more here than clinical research for the various patients.
5: Uh, There's a few of us up here. When they built the center in Boston, it became the hub of foundation activity, but the original archives are still kept upstairs. You have to be here to get access to the early research library. Morning, Charles.
3: Uh, Hello,
1: Dr. Brooks.
5: This is Dr. Atwater, the transfer from Boston.
3: For Dr. Bailey. Yes. I see. This is your security badge, Dr. Atwater. You should be sure to wear it around the institution. Thank you, Charles.
5: Are Dr. Atwater's keys ready
3: yet? I have the office keys, but the ward keys aren't ready yet, Doctor. Um... Robert said he would have them tomorrow.
5: Oh, there's a new arrival in the Maximum Security Ward, so uh, I imagine he's got his hands full. I guess you'll have to rely on the orderlies to get you around the ward, Dr. Atwater. I don't have access downstairs. I
3: wasn't planning on anything more than just looking around today. I'll get the keys myself tomorrow if you'll just tell me who to talk to.
5: Robert Elliott's in charge of the orderlies. He's the one. Here, we have to sign the day sheet.
3: Oh. Thank you, Dr. Brooks. And welcome to the sanitarium, Dr. Atwater. Oh, thank you, Charles. It was a pleasure meeting you.
5: This way. So, how do you like New Bristol so far?
3: Oh, fine. Fine. I'm, I've been here a few days trying to get settled, but I'm having a few problems with the house I bought. I don't think anyone's lived there since the Mayflower put into port. <laughs> right. I
5: guess you'll have to get used to not having all the conveniences of city life, especially here. I'm sure you'll find everything a bit more primitive.
3: Well, I've had my fill of Boston.
5: How's your family taking the move?
3: Actually, my wife passed away recently, and my daughter is with my parents until I can send for her.
5: Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Agnes, this is Dr. Atwater. Uh, hello. (laughs) They're inside.
6: In any case, I am expecting Atwater any minute now, and I will expect you all to treat him with the respect befitting our mutual profession.
0: I still think it's damn strange sending a young lad here to the Hayward Retirement Home for aged scholars.
5: <coughs> Gentlemen... Dr. Uh, Dr. Atwater.
6: Ah, Dr. Edwater. I have been greatly looking forward to our meeting. I am Professor Karl Hauptmann, the administrator of this facility.
3: Oh, it's a very great honor to meet you, sir. I've read your treatise on chemical imbalances as a major cause of catatonic schizophrenia.
6: Oh, I hope you found my humble efforts worthy of your time, doctor. Now, uh, permit me to introduce the rest of my staff. Here on my right is the noted expert on corrective neurosurgery and our chief of surgery, Dr. Malcolm MacLeod.
3: Dr. Atwater. Well, pleasure, Doctor.
6: On my left is our archivist, Claude Matignon.
3: Pleased to meet you,
6: sir. Pleasure yes, is mine. And by the window are the other two senior staff members, Drs. Chandler and Fox, who you will be working with in the wards.
3: Gentlemen, Dr.
6: Dr. Brooks will show you to your office so that you can get settled in. I am sure that you are anxious to orient yourself here. Uh, Dr. Brooks has also graciously volunteered to assist you with meeting the rest of the staff. I am sure that you are aware that one of our most important functions here, well, one of your most important functions, will be to interview and monitor the field researchers after expedition.
3: Uh, yes, sir. My old supervisor gave me the full details of my duties. I must take over the care of Dr. Bailey's patients, handle the psychological evaluations of field operatives, and coordinate with Dr. McLeod on the medical care of all the patients here at the sanitarium.
1: Exactly. Uh, Dr. Atwater, I believe your work with sleep disorders and uh, and dreaming should be most helpful in dealing with some
6: of our our more difficult cases. (laughs) I agree. Uh, But since you seem to already understand your duties here, I will not keep you any longer, Doctor. You will find the files for your cases in Dr. Bailey's... (laughs) that is, your office. Feel free to call upon me Any time for assistance. And I will meet with you later to see how you are doing.
3: Well, doctor, shall we go? Uh, Of course. Uh, Goodbye, gentlemen.
6: Goodbye, Uh, Dr. Dr. Atwater. Uh, Now,
3: gentlemen... Come in
5: see how you're getting along. Get moved in easy enough?
3: No, oh, yes, uh, as you can see, not really much to it. Just a few things.
5: I see. Is this a picture of your daughter? Yes. Oh, she looks a lot like your wife. Uh, hey, uh, you brought this computer up from the city, huh? I don't think half the codgers up here have even seen a laptop. Um, are you starting in on the cases tomorrow?
3: Uh, yes. Um, I'm trying to orient myself around Bailey's files right now so I can get a feel for what's going on.
5: You shouldn't have to worry about the research staff for a while. Most are still out in the field, and those of us who are here are just doing book work. Bailey gave everyone a shrink a few months ago anyway.
3: I take it you're not fond of counseling after field research?
5: Not at all. It's an insult to our character to think that we aren't stable enough to withstand pressures in the field.
3: Oh, I don't know. Some of the research done around here involves some pretty intense things that really should be talked out. No one is psychologically invulnerable to all trauma. Well, Take this case and this file I was looking at when you came in. This individual was once employed by the Foundation, and his breakdown is most definitely related to an experience in the field.
5: Oh, you mean Dermot.
3: Yes, Dermot O'Brien. Do you know him very well?
5: We worked together at the Center in London, but never on the same project or anything.
3: But what was he like then?
5: He seemed very wild, like he was always rushing around trying to accomplish something. He was a very funny guy sometimes, when he was in a talkative mood.
3: I see. Well, according to his file, he was almost remanded to a clinic several times. But the excellent quality of his work led the supervisors to overlook his temperament. Perhaps if he had been treated sooner, he wouldn't be in the shape that he is now.
5: Well, I don't see how you could expect someone who grew up in the middle of a war zone like Belfast to be stable anyway.
3: Mm.
5: I heard he was involved with the IRA before coming to the Foundation.
3: It says here he lived in Belfast with an uncle, Seamus, until he was about 17, then went to Trinity College in Dublin where he took degrees in religious studies and philosophy. Hmm. He graduated well in the top ten percentile of his classmates.
5: You know, if I remember correctly, he mentioned spending some time in Angola researching African religions. That was right before he joined the Foundation, I think.
3: (laughs) There are several gaps in this record. I wonder what he was doing that he didn't want the Foundation to know about.
5: Will you be seeing him soon?
3: Well, hopefully first thing tomorrow morning. He sounds like a very interesting case.
5: Well, be careful. I'm told he can be quite violent at times. He never went into the field unarmed, and there are those who questioned his scholarly method, if you get my meaning, Doctor.
3: Hmm. I'm sure everything will be fine. Well, I suppose I should read some more of these files before I go home for the day.
5: I'll see you later, then.
3: Yeah. Sure, see ya. We
1: have O'Brien
3: in the consultation room.
1: He seems to be pretty calm
3: today. Oh, thanks, Robert. Uh, Why don't you wait here? Uh, Would you rather I was inside with you? Uh, No, I don't expect any trouble.
1: Okay.
0: So
3: here's my new head doctor. Come to see if I've gone any further on the bend. Good morning to you, Mr. O'Brien. I'd just like to take some time to get acquainted with you, since we'll be spending so much time together. What's to know? I'm a blithering lunatic. Isn't that what my file says? Mm, Your file does say that your last case went rather badly. It says that after your retrieval from Haiti, your next assignment was a routine research expedition to Dunwich Crossing, Massachusetts. Something about the witch trials, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Though I wouldn't say it was routine. Mm Mm-hmm. You burned down a church, killed one person, and seriously wounded a state trooper before you were arrested. Well, I'll not deny that I did those
0: things. Nor will I say I was completely sane at the time. But I have no regrets. Why not? Because I was trying to save the damn town. And myself, of course.
3: There was a great evil in that church. It says in the file that there was evidence that you were tortured in Haiti after you were captured by the cult. Do you think that has anything to do with what you saw in the church? No. I saw what I saw. Well, why don't you tell me what happened in your own words, then? All right, then.
0: It's like this. After I got back from Haiti, the Foundation wanted to give me a nice quiet project to ease me back into the job. It was supposed to be a routine record gathering assignment on the witch trials in Massachusetts. In particular, records dealing with a 17th century warlock named Elias Devon. So I hopped onto a train from Boston to a little town called Dunwich. <laughs> All
3: up
6: Here's your stop, sir.
3: Have a pleasant day.
0: Thanks. Do you know if there's a hotel in this town?
3: Mm, that would be the Dunwich Inn, sir, just up this road here. Thanks again. You're welcome. The party in five minutes for our common
0: It was a wet five-minute walk to the so-called inn. It was really an old motel. It took a while to get a hold of the clerk. Christ, talk about the sticks. All right, all right, hold your britches. I'm coming, I'm coming. I need a room. Sign here. This is the number four, it's around back. That'll be 30 bucks. Checkouts at noon. I moved in and went to bed more or less right away. The next morning I had breakfast at the local diner. I went to the library to start working. The stacks didn't have anything besides the usual stuff, so I asked the librarian for some assistance into the archives.
3: Oh, can I uh, help you, young man?
0: I hope so, sir. I'm trying to find some records dealing with the witch trials in this area. I tried the stacks, but I haven't found anything like what I'm looking for. Do you have anything in the rare books collection I could see? Well, I'm afraid everything we have is on the shelves, sir. Well, where would I look to find any records dealing with a man named Elias Devon? My research on him has led me here. Elias Devon? We don't have anything like that. Uh, Try Town Hall. Thank you, sir. You've been most helpful. I headed to the Town Hall that afternoon. I couldn't shake the feeling the old librarian was covering up something, or just giving me a brush off.
1: Oh, sir, I'm afraid that the specific kind of records that you're looking for aren't here.
0: But the librarian referred me
1: here, saying all the primary records from the founding of the town had moved to the hall here. Uh, That's true, sir. But the particular documents that you're interested in were lost in a fire. Oh, back about 1840, I suppose, when the old town hall was lost, in that big blaze that swept through town. Well, I reckon they tried to save as much as they could, but what can you do?
0: Oh, yeah. Well, good day, sir. Good day, young fella. What did you do next? Well, faith, man. I did the only thing I could do. I went for a bite. It turns out that all wasn't lost, though. That was where I met Rachel.
3: Ah, that would be the organist mentioned here.
0: Uh, yes. I was having a cup of tea, thinking I had run out of options, that the Foundation had sent me up the Primrose Path. This young lass who was working the till started talking to me. I was at the counter, and I guess she was kind of curious about me, being a stranger and all.
4: Good evening, sir. Will you be wanting another cup of tea?
0: I suppose so. Unless you got anything stronger behind that shelf there.
4: Oh, no, sir. You won't find anything like that in this town. We don't get a lot of tourists up this way. You mind if I ask what you're doing in these parts?
0: I was trying to find some information in the town records.
4: I imagine no one's been real helpful, huh?
0: Well, I've never known a small town to take kindly to outsiders poking around.
4: I guess not. I've lived here all my life, and that's the way it is. I suppose that when everybody knows everybody, you get kind of uneasy about strangers coming in.
0: You're right about that, but folks usually aren't quite this shy.
4: Hey, you're from Boston, aren't you?
0: (laughs) Most recently, yes.
4: Do you think there would be any work for a musician? I'm playing organ for the church now, but I'm thinking about moving up there.
0: Well, I'm not a musician, so I wouldn't know about that. I uh, saw that church down the road. Is that where you play?
4: Yeah, that's the one. It's actually an old Puritan meeting house, one of the few buildings to survive the Great Fire. It must be a monument or something. You should go look at it before you leave town. They really have kept it up.
0: We kept up with the small talk, and she got around to mentioning she was actually going to the church when she got off work to practice for the next service. It took some convincing, but I managed to invite myself along. I told her I'd really like to hear her play, but I was actually interested in getting at the church records. If what she said was correct, the church was more likely to have the information I was looking for. She was right about the church itself. It certainly looked like the Puritans had built it, it was remarkably well kept. I was afraid it had been rebuilt, but she assured me that regular restoration had taken place, most of it was original. I sat and listened for a while, as long as I had to, before I slipped out to look for the church's archives. The preacher's annex didn't have much, more than anywhere else, enough to confirm my suspicions that there were those in town trying to keep me away from what I was looking for, either out of fear or shame, or just plain stubbornness.
3: Then what happened?
0: Well, I exhausted the records in the annex rather quickly, but they just didn't go back far enough. I was beginning to think that the earliest records were lost when the church switched denominations. Then I saw the door.
3: What door was that?
0: A heavy old door with wrought hinges. It was on the back wall with the tall bookshelves that obscured it from my sight when I first came into the room. It was locked. A heavy padlock and hasp had been affixed to it. Picking the lock wasn't an obstacle except for a legal one. I listened to see if Rachel was still occupied before I ventured to open it. Feeling no threat of discovery I went ahead. The dank air nearly pulled me over as I opened it up. I felt along the wall for a light switch. The stone masonry was wet with condensation. I only searched a bit before realizing this was the church's original foundation and it hadn't been wired for electricity. I improvised a light source and headed down the stairs, testing each step carefully. At the bottom of the stairs was a hurricane lamp, and after I cleared the cobwebs away, I found it had some oil left and lit it. And that was when I got my first look at the place. There were old wooden trunks that held some musty hindles in one corner. In another was a dusty shake-up table and chair. Some boxes held old choir robes that had definitely seen better days. I'd say it had been years since any man set foot down here. There was one trunk that was locked, I thought it strange. A lock was so rusted it nearly crumbled in my hand. Upon opening it, I discovered several dust-covered, leather-bound volumes. Oh yes, it seemed not all the records had been lost. I took them to the table and sat down. I rushed through them to find what I was looking for. It was there in the third volume. Elias Devon, convicted of commerce with the devil, found guilty and sentenced to be burned at the stake. I read on. It appeared he had been a very wealthy farmer in the area. He had prospered while others had barely scratched a living from the rocky soil, plagued by blights and misfortune. His jealous neighbors finally had him arrested for witchcraft, and speedily tried and convicted him. On the eve of his scheduled burning, he escaped with the help of the jailer's daughter. They found the girl some days later in a wooded hollow, dead. Her body had been horribly mutilated, as if in some satanic ritual. And though the ensuing manhunt covered two counties, Elias Devon was never seen again, alive or dead. It was all there. Deeds, records, genealogies, depositions, every piece I needed more. Handwritten, dated November 1st, 1683. I turned the yellowed pages, one by one, searching for more, until I found the head staring at me, gloating. Someone had made a woodcut of the thing, black ink against yellow parchment. Its hair like coal black flame atop a high furrowed brow. Underneath, its eyes, its hollow federal eyes filled with malignant mockery, burning into my mind. Suggesting foul and evil thoughts, that sneering smile cracking across tight lips. It was laughing at me, cackling, screaming, with unholy mirth.
2: You have summoned
0: devils and demons.
4: Mr. O'Brien, you're not supposed to be here.
0: Something was blocking the only way out, cutting off my escape from the head. Some dark figure with outstretched arms, trying to grab me, claw me, take me with it to whatever hell it came from. It was screaming at me while the head continued its evil, seductive litany. I couldn't breathe, couldn't move. My heart felt like it was bursting. I had to get out of there. I had to flee from the head and its minion.
4: Are you all right? Should I call a doctor?
0: The dark shape pressed closer and closer, pushing me backwards towards the head. I couldn't think of anything else to do. I couldn't think at all. I did what I had to do.
3: Is that when you shot the girl? Yes. All of a sudden,
0: it was quiet. Rachel's body lay before me, bloody. I suddenly realized my mistake and bent over her to see if I could do anything. But she was dead, wasn't she? Yes, she was. I saw what I had done to her, and I slumped against the wall. Her blood slowly ebbed from her body, pulling on the stone floor. I tried to get myself together, My first instinct was to run. I was certain the gunshot had attracted attention. I decided to go upstairs. I turned around to get the book, but the head, it was still there, grinning even more maliciously at me. I heard a sound from behind me. The girl, she was getting up off the floor, but I had killed her. I know I did. The corpse began to lurch towards me, still trying to do the head's bidding. I threw the lamp at the book, anything to stop that wailing. The flames devoured the brittle pages, moving on quickly to the table. Soon consumed the entire room until it was like a burn in hell. She was still coming. Nothing stopped her. The flames licking at her feet, slowly coming for me. Can't you see he's here? In the flames, that burning face. I've got to run. Get away. Oh Jesus, they're everywhere. The whole place is a burning Hades. There's no way out. Oh, God, save me! Orderly! Save me. Orderly! Let me off No. are Quickly, Restrain it! Restrain him! Oh, God! Hold God, let me go! Let hey, me, all me you go! All right, we got it. We got You let me go!
1: There you go. right now. I can. I can.
3: All
1: right. Are you all right, doctor? Why didn't you let me come in with you? He's not safe Yes, Robert,
3: I'm fine. Order Mr. O'Brien a clinical dosage of Thorazine and place a man at the door and watch him until he's calmer. I'm Page me if anything happens. Yes, Doctor, but, but what about you? My first session with Jomad O'Brien has left me with much to ponder. I can't understand the decision to send O'Brien to Dunwich Crossing so soon after his experience in Haiti. Why would the Foundation reassign an individual who had suffered such obvious physical and mental torture without allowing any significant recovery period? The possibility exists that Dermot's current mental state is due to the scars left from the Haiti experience, but I can't help but wonder if there isn't something more. What was that head he kept referring to? He began to lose control at the point in the session when he recalled it. Is it possible that looking at that simple picture was the catalyst for the whole episode? Curiously, the Foundation database contains no records of a research assignment on Elias Devon.
2: Dictation ends.